things. We have in our home a nativity set that we got uh, the first year of our marriage, Jennifer and me. We received it as a gift, and initially it was just the stable and then the holy family. So there was Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and that was all. But over the time of, I guess, 11 years in marriage, we've collected more and more little figurines to go with the set. So now there's about 20 people and animals huddled around the stable. And uh, first of December, we were so excited to bring out the nativity so that our children, Mason and Caleb, could help us set it up. Now, they're six and four. And so uh, the idea of letting them kind of position the characters and we could talk through the meaning of the nativity, much better in theory than in practice. It took about two minutes for there to be an all-out nativity war. And they had the, the figurines were fighting each other like G.I. Joe's. Baby Jesus completely disappeared. I found him at the bottom of the stairs later on. There's a donkey still at large. And I was just hoping he didn't get flushed down the toilet. We don't know where the donkey is. Now, Jennifer and I can laugh about that for two reasons. First, praise God, the figurines are made of plastic, okay? So they're hard to break. But then secondly, you have to know, you have to know that the first Christmas was at least a little bit chaotic, right? I mean, we try to polish it up and make it look very nice and neat because it's our, it's our tendency to want to romanticize things. But to give birth to a baby in a stable out in the harsh elements is probably not the, the most serene environment to begin with. No epidural for Mary, uh, no doctors, no nurses, nurses just livestock. And the, and the harsh elements of nature. And no matter how we want to kind of polish that up, you know, we sing away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. It sounds so sweet and wonderful. But a manger is a feeding trough. And I can tend to forget that. I, th- I picture a crib. I picture something more suited to our culture and to what we view as normal, but it's, it's a feeding trough, which means it was surely very gritty and smelly and unsanitary, but in a strange and mysterious way, it was exactly as God intended it. And that's the thing we have to understand. This is exactly how God dreamt it up and then put it into, into action. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at the Christmas story both today and next Sunday, But we're going to look at it from two different angles. We're going to look today at Luke chapter 2, what Trey read for us, at the details, the actual story of the birth of Christ. Next week, we're going to look at John chapter 1. And John chapter 1, of course, is not about the details of Jesus' birth, but it's actually about the meaning behind it. What does it mean that Jesus came into the world as the divine Son of God? And so the question that we have to ask today, and it's a simple question, how does the birth of Christ reveal to us the grace of God? How does the manger story connect us to the heart of God? Is it just a nice story that we've heard so many times, or is there something about it that shows us a deeper level understanding of who God is and what God's purposes for us are? And the answer, of course, is yes, it shows us much more than what meets the eye. This is, this is deeper and more meaningful than maybe we realize uh, in the way that we kind of polish it up, okay? So the, the first point in the story, you, you heard this and, and you've read it, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. The first point of this story, it's very stark and it's very obvious, but it's shocking to us. It would have been shocking, of course, to the original hearers, and it still is for us today. It's the point of Christ's humility. It's the humility of Jesus. We see that, that God 
orchestrated this event in almost every way opposite that we would have done it if we came up with this. I mean, you think about it, if you know any of the background, if you've seen maybe movies that depict it, Mary and Joseph were about as poor and socially insignificant as they come. There's no obvious reason that God would choose them to be the parents of Jesus. It doesn't really make any sense to us that his divine son would have parents that had absolutely no social standing or, or uh, apparent reason for their choosing. And we, we, you know, this, is, this, is, this is a point that's been made many times, but what kind of entrance into the world for a savior, for a king, to be born in a stable, to be, to be laid down in a feeding trough, right? That's about as humble, that's about as far down as you can go. And we see that in verse 7. I love how Luke paints the picture for us. He doesn't try to romanticize it. He just gives us the bare and plain facts. Verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. She laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, no room for them in the inn. I'm not, I, I can't imagine that we're talking about the, the Hilton Garden Inn or anything quite like that in Bethlehem at this point. But the idea is that nobody, apparently nobody, had enough grace and favor in their own hearts to make room for a woman in the throes of labor in the middle of the night. And, and see, I, you know, this, this story in a sense kind of frustrates me because I'm thinking, well, I'd, I'd make room for him. I mean, you know, woman about to give birth, birth to the Son of God, you know, I'm sure they didn't know those details at that time. But just common courtesy, make room for the lady who's about to have a baby, right? But we need to be really careful. I've got to be careful not to read the details of this story as happenstance. To say, well, you know, God probably intended for them to stay at the inn, but, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph were too slow. They were too slow in getting there. Everything was filled up. That was their own fault. You know, it's just kind of the way it happened. Uh, but no, see, all of these things are intentional. And I can't make that, I can't stress that enough that all of these things are intentional because here, here's, what, here's how I estimate this story, the Christmas story. This is, at the same time, here's what's happening. God is meeting our deepest need, but he's also failing our greatest expectations. Okay? God is meeting our deepest need right here, but he's also failing, he's defying our greatest expectations. And I want you to think about this. The expectation and desire of man is for glory and honor, and majesty, and power, and wealth. That is fundamental to our hearts. We are not attracted to humility and lowliness, okay? We may recognize it as a virtue, sure, but it is not the foundation of our hearts to pursue lowliness and humility. And for us, the, the, we, we associate those things with weakness, right? To be lowly is to be weak. And so the thought of a, of a humble God is really offensive to us. It's one of the reasons I believe in the Christian faith over and above all other religious systems is because only the Christian faith would deny us what's natural to us. I don't think a human being could have made this up, right? Because God wouldn't act this way. God has no reason to be humble. We do, but not him. We expect God in all these cases to come in power and fire and thunder. But what we see right here is we see weakness we see humility, that God is defying the expectation of man. He doesn't come to us the way we would have assumed. And so here at the first Christmas, nobody even notices what's going on. I mean, nobody's even aware of what's happening. God did not announce it in advance with trumpets 
in the heavens so that everybody would gather around. No, it happened in basically seclusion. And I feel like I kind of I quote this a lot, but it's, it, it's so helpful to me in understanding the character of God in bringing Christ to us. It's from Philippians 2. You don't need to turn to Philippians 2. But in Philippians 2, Paul gives us this insight into the humility of Christ when it says that, that although God, although Jesus existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not view that equality with God as something to be taken advantage of for his own purposes, but he emptied himself, Paul tells us, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's the truth, but it, it, it's counterintuitive because nobody wants a lowly Savior. When we think of a Savior, a hero, we want somebody who's handsome and powerful and has this overwhelming strength about them. We want a champion to come, and when we see him, we know, oh, he's come to save us. And that's not how God brought Christ into the world. He defied our great expectations, but he fulfilled our great need. And that was, of course, the point. God didn't come to impress us here. He came to save us by plunging himself down into the darkness of our sin, into the greatest, deepest need that the world have. He became one of us. And that's what Paul has told us in Philippians, right? That he emptied himself and he became a man. He took on the form of a bondservant. Jesus could have, I mean, theoretically, been born as a king in a palace removed from the cares and troubles of, of the real world, of real people. That's not how God brought him to us. He was born naked in a stable, and later on he would die naked on a cross. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so listen, the humble birth of Jesus is not just an interesting detail. It is the open door into God's presence and His grace. Everything that we receive from God is, in a sense, a, a, the end of a trail that starts here at the birth of Christ. That what God is communicating to us here in His own humility, not a humility that God had to express, right? As if somehow He's deficient. No, He chose it this way. And it proves to us, it ought to show us that nobody is excluded from Him. Nobody's disregarded by God on the basis of where you were born or what family you were born into. Nobody is too weak or too poor or too dumb that God can't save them. Certainly no one's too sinful that they're beyond the reach of God. A God who was willing to come down to the very, very, very bottom through the birth of His Son, born into a feeding trough. This communicates to us something about God that is endlessly deep, and we shouldn't polish it up and somehow miss it this time of year. God chose humility so that he could reach down to the very bottom where we were. Now, when a baby's born, we do this. We, we uh, announce the birth, right? It's very customary for us. If you're Facebook friends with the Bentons, you've already seen the announcement of Cooper's birth yesterday. If you uh, and and we, we send out cards to our family and friends, right? Because it's a momentous occasion. We announce the birth. And God is no stranger to good etiquette. So God is going to do the very same thing. He's going to announce now the birth of Christ. He didn't do it beforehand in the sense of, hey, come gather around and see. But right after the fact, we notice what God does. And in keeping with the theme, he doesn't go to the royalty or to the scholars or the religious elite. He goes humble. He goes to the shepherds in the fields, right? Look at verse 8. 
In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. They were sore afraid, the King James says. You know, it, it, real quickly, it would help us to remember this, that at this stage of Israel's history, God had been effectively silent for a couple of hundred years at this point. There had been no prophets. There had been no books written to Israel. There had been no, as far as we know, no angelic appearances, anything like that. And, and the, the perception, I'm sure, on Israel's part is that God's silence was a reflection of his wrath and his anger. God must be angry with us. Perhaps he's forsaken us. He's forgotten us. He's moved on from us because we weren't good enough for him. Right? I mean, it's entirely possible that that's what Israel had internalized throughout this period of God's seemingly silent uh, non-activity in the world. And yet when this angel appears to these shepherds, they're, they're terribly frightened. We would be too, by the way. Of course, there's an angel in the middle of the night. But I, now I'm, I'm, I'm reading a little into this, I realize, but I think it's entirely possible that part of the fear on the shepherd's part is the thought that after 400 years of silence, God finally shows up in the middle of the night and it's judgment day. Because he's got to be angry with us. Surely he's forsaken us and now he shows up and it can't be for something good. I mean, I have to think that that would have been my impression there, those shepherds in the middle of the night. Like this is not a happy visit, right? They're afraid and we would be too. But look at verse 10. But the angel said to them, the first words out of his mouth, Fear not. It's good news. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Um, what I, in my mind, the greatest moment in television history comes from a Charlie Brown Christmas. Most of us have seen the cartoon, and the basis of the, the little 30-minute cartoon is that Charlie Brown has, is very disillusioned with Christmas. He doesn't understand what it's all about. From his perspective, it's, it's very commercialized. It's full of greed. All everybody wants is presents and money. And he can't wrap his mind around that, and it's making him depressed. And so there's this point late in the, in the show where he says, can't anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And in walks Linus. And Linus explains to Charlie Brown the true meaning of Christmas by quoting our scripture for today. He quotes from Luke chapter 2. Um, and he tells Charlie Brown about the true meaning of Christmas. Now, Linus is the character who always, always carries with him a blue security blanket. All right? you, he ne you never see him without his blue blanket with him. And yet, as he quotes from Luke chapter 2, and he comes to verse 10, he says, But the angel of the Lord said to him, Fear not. And Linus drops his blanket. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. See, that, that little blue blanket was his trust. It was his security in the face of all of his fears. But at the mention of God's good news, at the mention of the angels, fear not, Linus lets it go. And the symbolism there is so very obvious and it's so rich that we have, we have in Christ a new hope and a new trust, and we have ultimately nothing at all to fear 
because good news of great joy has entered into the world for us. And that phrase, good news, Luke, who wrote this gospel, he wrote it in Greek, and that phrase in Greek, good news, that's the same root word for the word gospel, that the angel comes to proclaim the gospel. This is the long-awaited gospel, the good news, God's proclamation to the world that he has not forgotten about us. He has not forsaken us. He has not moved on from us, leaving us to die in our sins. No, he's brought to us good news of great joy. And he tells us, the angel tells us what that is. Verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. We see in an ongoing way the humility that God is trying to communicate through the birth of Christ, but now we also see the glory. And that those two things are not contradictory to one another, that they somehow exist together, that there's humility and there's glory, and we see it in what we just read. But I, again, I have to wonder, I'm trying to put myself in the shepherd's sandals here for just a minute, and, and to, to think about what, what could have been going through their mind at this moment. Because on one hand, there's an angel, there's glory in their presence, and it's, it calls them to quake in fear. But then he starts to explain to them the, the, the nature of this good news. And he says, there is born today in the city of David a Savior. Now, the city of David, that's Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was such a tiny little forgotten village. I mean, it was barely even a blip on the radar. It was a place of no significance uh, at all. And yet, that's where the Savior's born. That perhaps would have confused them. And then when you get there, when you go and see him, you're going to find him wrapped up in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. I mean, how much humbler can you get than that, right? That seems contradictory. But then suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, an angel army, proclaiming together glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to men with whom he is pleased. And I just, I, I made this point a little bit earlier, but to me, the, the, the Christmas story is exactly how God dreamed it up and then executed it according to his good pleasure. It's exactly the way God wanted it to be. It seems, on the surface, maybe it seems kind of thrown together, right? I mean, poor Joseph and Mary, poor Mary especially, had to ride on a donkey all the way down there, gets there, no room has to go give birth in a stable, has to, uh, no, no sanitation. I mean, there's just nothing about it that's ideal in any way. And we're tempted, I'm tempted to kind of feel sorry for them and to wish better for them. I mean, they give birth all alone, no family to surround them or anything. But you know what? The, the, the angels in verse 14 don't show up and say, gee, I hope God knows what he's doing. We'll see how this one turns out. You know, like their fingers are crossed. I wonder here if somehow God messed up. And, and, and did this in a way that maybe he didn't intend. But no, listen to what they say. Glory to God in the highest. God knows exactly what he's doing. This is exactly as he planned it. This is exactly what he wanted it to be. Glory to God for what he's done. There's nothing about this that we should feel sorry for them. There's nothing about this that's just happenstance. This was God's great plan from eternity past, and now it's coming to fruit. And look at the end of verse 14. On earth... Peace 
among men with whom God is pleased. Now, I asked at the beginning of this message, how does the birth of Christ reveal the grace of God? How does the manger story reflect the heart of God for us? And of course, the answer is all throughout. But at the end of verse 14 is especially interesting to me. And so I'm going to read it again. It's very, very simple. And on earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. Now, the way that reads to me, very simple. Um, God will give peace to people who are pleasing to him. God will give, give good things to people who he views as good and worthy. Right? I mean, it's, that's kind of how it reads on the surface. And that's a perfectly true statement. If Jesus came into the world simply to reinforce religion to us. And the idea being, uh, and this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a false notion among some Christians, it's called the moral influence theory, which basically says Jesus came into the world to show us how to live, to show us the, the ultimate life given in devotion to God, and now our responsibility is to be inspired by his moral example and to follow in his footsteps. That's why he came. Now, certainly we're called to imitate the example of Christ, but that is not why he came. The idea here that God loves do-gooders, and so just do good and you'll be in. Peace to those with whom he's well-pleased, right? So pick up your game and be pleasing to him. That's not why Jesus came. We're told, look again back in verse 11, we're told why he came. Not to influence us in God's direction. But today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came into the world to be our Savior precisely because we cannot please God. That's the whole point of his coming. We cannot please God in the way that we live. No matter how hard we try, we are lost in our sins. We are far from God. We fall short of God's glory. And so there's nothing wrong with verse 14. It's not somehow wrong to say that peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased, but in order for that verse to be fulfilled, someone has to come and do it for us. And that's why there has been born for you a Savior in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. It's only Jesus who can come and fulfill that latter part on our behalf. We cannot please God. Someone has to do it for us. And so only a perfect son, a divine son, could live a life totally pleasing to God, and he did. Not for his own sake, and not just to show us how it's done, but he came to impute it. He came to give it to us as a gift. Only a sinless man can die for sinners. I can't do that. You can't. You can die for your own sins, and you should if God were just, right? But he put his justice upon Christ. He died for you, and therefore you are now pleasing to God. Only Jesus could fulfill all righteousness, not just for himself, but for you. And that's the point of the Christmas story. So the question is, does God find you pleasing? The answer, the correct answer, is both no and yes. No, God does not find you. He does not find me pleasing on our own merits. We don't come to him because we try hard enough to be good enough. That's the unfortunate no, but at the very same time, and overwhelming the no is the yes. God is pleased with you if you have faith in Jesus Christ who has done everything for you as your Savior. God is pleased because he has accounted all that Jesus has done to you as if you did it. 
You are pleasing to God by the virtue of the sinless man who died for you. And so if a Savior has been born for you, a Savior has also died for you. And a Savior has also been raised again for you so that you might share in his glory by faith in him. That's a gift. It's, uh, it's interesting for me. Sometimes I try to explain to my kids, my six and my four-year-old, um, how could God be pleased, happy, with his son being born in a feeding trough? How could that make God happy? Um, and more than that, much more than that, how could, how could it please God for that son of his to grow up and to be killed on a cross? I mean, how could it please God for his only begotten son to die in such a shameful and agonizing way? But we see it, I think it's so clear to us that, in, that Jesus, think about his birth, in his humble birth, he's able to bring us to glory. In his humble birth, he's able to bring us to glory because he came all the way down to redeem sinners. And in his agonizing death, in his suffering death, he's able to give us life. He's able to give us uh, not what we deserved, which was death for ourselves, which was eternal judgment, but he took that for us and now he gives us life in its place. That's why Paul in Galatians 1, Paul says of his own salvation that God was pleased to reveal his son in me. I love the way he, he says that. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Paul does not say, God was pleased with me. He found me worthy and good. I had done enough. And then he saved me. He brought me into his presence. He expressed his favor upon me. No. Paul says, he was pleased to reveal Christ to me. Christ in me. The basis of Paul's salvation was entirely of Christ, was entirely in what God was pleased to do for Paul, and the same goes for us. I mean, every single one of us, we live in that very same place of God taking good pleasure in birthing a son in a stable, in having that son murdered on a cross, awful as those things are to our naked eye. We look at those things and they're counterintuitive to us, and yet in those things, God brings about redemption for you and me. He's pleased to reveal Christ in us as a gift by faith. And so the Christmas story is the picture of God's grace because it shows us the links that God would go to in order to reach down into our ugliness and our rebellion and our darkness, to empty himself and take on the form of a bondservant so that he might redeem us out and bring us into life. Now, I suspect most of us have a nativity set somewhere in your house right now. Hopefully yours is better organized than ours. Um, but man, let's, let's do ourselves a favor this Christmas. Let's fight the urge and temptation to romanticize it, to pretend that it was as serene maybe as the songs make it appear to be, because we're, we're, it's possible that in polishing it up and in remembering it as if it were this serene, wonderful, precious little moment, we might lose the, um, the, the, rea the, the, the stinging reality of what it was all about that sin had separated us from God and that the birth of Christ came to unite us to him. And that in that moment, just very practically, it was harsh. It wasn't serene. It was dirty. It was painful. It was difficult. And almost no one knew or even cared that it was happening. 
And yet right there in the harsh darkness of Bethlehem, in the darkness of the world lost in our sin, God made his most glorious move yet. He brought the light of our salvation into the world. Glory to God in the highest. And, and peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased because he has accounted his son to us. Let's pray. Father, would you impress this on our hearts right now? That, Lord, we don't deserve the Christmas story. That, Lord, Christ came to us as a gift, something we had not earned. And he came to us in a way that we would have never chosen. We would have never made this up. But yet, Lord, this is exactly what you intended. That you would, Lord, take on the very lowest form. That you would, you would even have your son born in the most adverse of circumstances. As a picture of your own heart. That you would be willing, Lord, to reach down to the very bottom of the pit that we had dug. And redeem us out. And Father, we owe everything to you. We owe everything to you. Because the gift of your Son, Lord, has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank you. And Father, would you, in, right in this moment, Lord, I trust that we all are living in an anxious time, that we, that we are, we're, we're running up against uh, deadlines at work, school's about to be out, gifts need to be purchased and wrapped, finances are tight perhaps. There's just, there are a lot of realities that are staring us in the face. Father God, those things matter. Those things are real. You care. But Lord, don't allow us for one minute to be so distracted, so anxious, so troubled that we miss the outrageous grace that has come to us in Christ. And Lord, protect our hearts also from being so accustomed to the story that we bypass it, that it's, that it's cartoonish to us, that, it's, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a bedtime story for our kids only. Father, no. This is the, this is the, the spark of our salvation. This is the hope of the world coming to us on that first Christmas. And Lord, give us hearts that are enriched and enlivened by this. That we wouldn't be able to get over it. How much you've loved us and how creative and how humble and how, just all the ways, Lord, that you, that you produced this wonderful thing for us. Um, and Lord, that, that, it would, that it would stun us, that it would shock us into worship, that it would not be business as usual, another Christmas for us. Father, um, remind us that, Lord, uh, um, what I think the stable and the manger represent, Lord, 
harshness and ugliness and dirtiness, Lord, that we would, we would remember that, Lord, those things reflect us. This is what you came for, Father, not to give us a good example to follow merely, but, Lord, to be our Savior. You came to where we were, and, Lord, you met our deepest need in Christ. We celebrate you, Lord. We ask that you would, that when we worship here in a moment, that we would worship with, uh, with full hearts and with hearty, glad voices that the Savior has come for us and that we are his by faith. So we thank you and we praise you in this moment. In Christ's name, amen.